0: Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jane Prater, and I am joined by hosts-
1: Patrick Green. And Dan Ferlito.
0: And we are also joined by uh, our recurring guest, from the midwest thanks for being on pete yeah thanks for having me again guys i hope you uh, i hope we uh hear lots of from you tonight uh so speak up um and we have a special guest um and that guest is ian ian i want to pronounce your last name is it Souter? souter
2: yeah Souter. that's right
0: Souter. okay um and ian is uh, just a brief introduction he is the admin and founder of the blade runner 2049 fan group and also the regular blade runner 2019 group on facebook and they're the biggest blade runner groups on social media so welcome Ian. and today we are discussing neander wallace and it's been a long time coming we've been talking about this episode for a while and i'm glad you guys are all here
3: yeah it's definitely been uh, mentioned in all the groups and people keep asking us for it just like joy and and rachel and, and other characters so um we're finally doing it although you know definitely seems like the most mysterious character that we've attempted so we'll see how it yeah. goes yeah
0: so tonight, I I just wanted to uh, start off, and I'd like to start off with our guests first, um, with first impressions on w- who Neander Wallace is. And I know I recently uh, re-watched the, uh, what is it, Nexus Dawn, the short film that they released before 2049 came out, just to kind of get a, a little bit better of a sense of who Neander is. I know he's he is mysterious, and but he has more screen time than Tyrell. Obviously, there's always the comparison, which I don't like to do. I think Neander's his own guy. I don't think that there are any, I don't think that there's similar characters, but I'm fascinated as to what you guys, what, what you guys think about him. So uh, if we can, let's start off with Ian and then we'll go to Pete and then we'll circle around for us.
3: You remember hunger. So you indulge the recluse whose patents keep that hunger at bay. I believe in life. In fact, I have wrung more life from our Earth than ever before. But it is dying. You
2: are dying. Well, for me, he's the most fascinating character, actually, in the movie. Maybe it's because we know so little about him, uh, and you, you can, you're free to let your imagination run wild and draw your own conclusions. And I know that uh, Jared Leto got a lot of uh, flack for the way he portrayed him from some of the fans, but I was actually blown away by his performance. Uh, even when I first saw it in Nexus Dawn, you know, I just thought, wow, I want to see more of this guy, and I want to know more about him. And I still feel that way.
0: What about you, Peter?
2: Yeah, um...
4: I'll start out just by reminding everyone that I had not really seen anything prior to 2049 coming out as far as any trailers. Um, I think I had explained before. I would just generally didn't seem that interested just because I thought it was, oh, yet here's another reboot. And we all know I was incredibly wrong (laughs) with that. Um, But so I didn't watch uh, Nexus Dawn first. I just went right into the the movie. I didn't even know Jared Leto was going to be in it, and um, I loved it. I, lo- I loved his first from his first um, scene um, through the entire movie. And I, I think my first impression, which you know, hopefully through this episode, we'll learn, changed quite drastically. Was originally I just thought, oh, here's here's our here's our villain. Um, he's got he's got a plan um, to dominate dominate either the human existence or the replicant existence. He's got some diabolical plan in store and let's see what he does. And so my first impression was definitely just as a, as here's the villain of the film. Um,
3: yeah, I'm always jealous when I hear people like Peter talk about how they isolated themselves from previews and from everything because I, although I didn't seek out things, I did watch, you know, a preview and, um, I don't believe I watched any of the shorts because I didn't know they existed until maybe my first or second viewing of 2049. Whoa, Um, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, as much as I'm a nerd about these movies, um, they did a really piss poor job of marketing those, whether, you know, whether that's on purpose or not. It, you know, we've talked about it before. that, That would have definitely increased some ticket sales and gotten some interest going had those, um, three shorts been advertised a little bit better, at least in my opinion. Um, Again, I mean, just goes to show that a super Blade Runner nerd like me could even miss it and not realize that those are there. And they're prequels, so they're, you know, uh, ostensibly designed to be watched prior to the movie. But anyways, it's okay. It means that by the time I got acquainted or I got acquainted with Wallace once or twice before I saw them. Um, but yeah, my, my initial thoughts kind of align with Peter. Uh, I got this very uh, ominous sort of menacing presence out of him. Um, and more overtly, yeah, just oppressive than um, than my experience with Tyrell. And again, I, I understand Jamie's point about comparisons. Uh, he is a different character, although his role in society—I mean, I mean—you know—he built his earthquake headquarters on top of Tyrell's, and he uh, bought the old company. So there's definitely a connection there. And while Tyrell is often described as arrogant and godlike, um, I don't know, there's something about him that just didn't seem as malevolent, at least straight off the bat, whereas from Wallace, I get this really dark um, sense from him uh, and, a, and a certain lack of morals or sort of a a man where the end always justifies the means no matter what. And so that was my initial gut feeling on seeing Neander. The particulars of my affliction make travel difficult.
1: I, so so I think that Neander Wallace is a wonderful example of a trope in great cinema that we don't talk about enough, which is genuine weirdness. I feel like he's a character who, on the page, which which we'll talk about. I have some script excerpts I, I want to go through. On the page, like, does not come across as being that strange. And then the way that Leto portrayed him was so unsettling and so bizarre. And what's so interesting is that it's in the context of a guy who actually saved the world. He saved humanity because he, you know basically became globally important post-blackout, while everything was falling apart and ecosystems were collapsing. And the things that we see in 2019 were basically, you know brought to their apotheosis. and then he has this genetically modified food system that basically saves the world. The food crisis ends. Uh, he buys out what was left of the Tyrell Corporation and becomes this globally ascendant you know, mega genius. Um, and uh, and so you would think on the page that he would be a really clearly heroic character, right? And then you see the portrayal that that, uh, that Leto does, and it is so unsettling and so strange and so otherworldly. And then you look at the script and you look at the way that he was written, and it's also, it's just layered with mystery and these things that like make very little sense. And you know that there's a lot of reasoning behind them, but you have to kind of try to divine what's really going on. And I love that. I love how, just like all of the great characters in Blade Runner, uh, Wallace is so much more than he appears to be the first time you see him. And because of that, I find him endlessly fascinating, a little bit terrifying, and also beautiful in his own way as a character and as a portrayal. i really I really like
2: this character a lot. This is a man who is prepared to do the hard things, and he lives for he's nobody looking over his shoulder. There's no there's n- nobody there to say to him don't do that this is a man who spends his almost entire life in silence in splendid isolation in the center of this massive temple that that he uh, he lives within um that does things to somebody living that way and you know, th- th- for me his whole speech people said oh it's it's affected you know it's a con- constant thing i see in the groups the uh, people find it really annoying but i i was saying to somebody the other day, if you lived on your own and you didn't speak to somebody for years on end, you might end up speaking that way. You're only used to hearing your own voice.
3: And he's blind most of the time, which we know affects your senses and your hearing and and everything else. Uh, Not that it directly has to affect your speech but he also doesn't watch people talk. You know what I mean? He doesn't watch their mannerisms. So I, I, I can see your point there where he really, both his isolation and his affliction um, could be sources of him developing his own kind of strange way of uh, moving around and talking and and um, just his presence around people.
2: I, um, say, I love that he did that you know, with the lenses. I love that, that letter did that because, it reinforces that if somebody can, is sighted and is playing somebody blind, the temptation to look at that person or behave in such a way, Whereas the way he behaves, the way his, his head turns, oddly bird-like as he's listening, You know, he's, he's favouring his dominant ear when, when he's listening. He turns his head away from them. He doesn't know where they're sitting other than you know, the direction of their voice. Mm. and. It, it's so. It comes across so genuine from from the word go. From the moment he enters the room in 2036, it came across as wholly genuine. And I understand that it was obviously it was the same on set when he entered the set. Uh, I remember Genevieve uh, in a, an interview said that the, the entire set hushed. They were so taken aback because he was he was led in on the arm of a helper, presumably, to help him negotiate his, his way. And everyone just stopped talking. They paid attention. No matter what they were doing, they paid attention to this man. And that's even before the cameras had started rolling
1: yeah, he's so fascinating. and And I think you're right that using opaque lenses like that gave his the way that he perceived space a very interesting visual aspect. I love what you said, Ian, about how he favors the dominant side so he can, you know hear where the sound is coming from and then deduce the you know geometric location of where people are from it. But I think it's also interesting that he's in such an acoustically confusing environment which one would assume he designed for himself because it is, you know, from a, from a resonance standpoint, it's super confusing because it's this very high vaulted stone or wood, you know, chamber covered with where the floor is almost entirely water. So I feel like it's it's a it's a really confusing acoustical environment to be in. And it just it, again is so many questions is why he would surround himself with that kind of a thing. And just uh something that I love is when um when Jared Leto focuses very intently on something like when he looks at the angel and when he looks at Deckard when he comes back, um you can see like what what would be um it's a very kind of predatory, very focused stare. But because his pupils aren't dilating or, or changing any shape because of the fact that he's actually occluded, um, it takes on this whole different meaning and you realize he's using these other, other senses. And then, of course, when the Barracudas come into play, it adds a whole different layer of death to the character. But just, just briefly going off what you said, Ian, on this eyesight, I think it's so interesting – and I know this gets brought up all the time in the discussion groups – that for somebody who can single-handedly save the world and who can build – this enormous temple to his own ego and his own ability to, um, you know, basically evangelize his own vision of the future, that he doesn't fix his own freaking eyesight, that he doesn't just get the equivalent of LASIK surgery in 2049. There's, there's something really deep behind that, I think.
3: I mean, with your theory, I guess it kind of makes sense that he may have built it, but who knows if he's been blind since birth or if it's an affliction that, you know, a disease that caught up to him later in life. Um, so it's possible that that was built when he still had his eyesight. Um, and then he went blind later. We, well, you know, it's one of those things that's, that's very, kind of ambiguous.
1: That's very true. And also, I should clarify, in one of the design books or one of the design interviews that we have reported on before, they mentioned that the idea of water on the floor was somehow um, uh, like an echolocation device as a security procedure. So you could uh, figure out where people's footsteps were coming from. So if, if any of you remember reading that or remember me talking about it on a previous episode, please illuminate me because there is some yeah. kind of a reason behind
2: that. Dennis Gassner, uh, the the set designer, said that you know he designed the Uguisubari, the the nightingale floors, you know, the wooden uh, floors that they used there. Uh, but he based that on the Kiyomizu-dera in, uh, in Kyoto, in Japan. You know, it's this massive temple, and every single every surface that you step on, you even though there's this massive space around about you, you can almost Locate somebody without your eyesight through, mm. the, through the use of, of the, the, the singing floor. You know the principle okay. is, is well, well known in Japan, and but uh, different sounds for different spaces allow you to identify whether somebody's further away from you or, or what quadrant right. they're leaving. Well, but, what, but what's so
1: fascinating is that because the ceiling is so high, a lot of that gets soaked up by the wetness of the acoustic. so it's, it's super interesting. But before we move on from that, just briefly, I'm looking at the script, and I wanted to read that very brief little um, excerpt about the environment, because in the actual script on the page, it says this. It says, um, Interior, private office, Wallace Tower, day. Like a meditation garden or a temple, a dim room lit by spears of artificial sunlight. A great fish-filled pond owns the floor. But for the square stone islands, a school of koi, love steps over the stone path across the pond to the far end by an arrangement of decadent chairs. There is a nervous oh. clip to her voice. So, so the, the environment is kind of set up right there, and it's just it's it's interesting that for, it was in the story even before it
0: was in the production considerations. It's it's so cool, such a cool environment. Neander isn't that different from these corporate um, these CEOs who who have created a, a, a cult of belief around what they're doing. I mean, we see that today. Um, and I know, and I have, I've had, I've never, um, well, uh, let me back that up. I have, I bought Leto's performance hook, line, and sinker. I think, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. I know that there's been some criticism that I don't know. In my opinion, it was kind of superfluous criticism, but I, I thought he was really, really brilliant, and he was mysterious, and he didn't play, you know, the way the character was written and the way he performed it, he didn't show his hand. We don't know if he's a replicant or if he isn't. Um, he says we a lot in, in reference to replicants, but at the same time, he kills them indiscriminately um, as if they're worthless, which may hint that he is human. Um, I, 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 And I again, he's built this... Um, He's built this cult of belief around around his uh, empire where he can get whatever he wants done. And, uh, you know, he has people to do it for him and he has people working for him. And, he ha- you know, he, he bought the Tyrell Corporation. He, essentially, he, he owns the workforce. He owns the workforce in either that region of America or America in general.
1: And, and just going off what you said, Jamie, uh, Leto did an interview with uh, with Decode Recode, a, a podcast a while ago, and uh, a direct quote from him is, this is a guy, speaking about Neander, who saved the world from starvation and has a very clear idea of what it's going to take in order for civilization to continue. I do have some friends in the tech world that I may or may not have based certain aspects of his character on. So, you know, it's it's fun to try to guess who it might be. But I think you're absolutely right. I think this is modeled on sort of proto-megalomaniacal tech people in a way.
0: And I would say that Wallace is, tends to be in my perception of him somewhat wise. I don't think, yes, he's a bit lofty. He's, you know, Shakespearean and overly poetic, but you know, I think about leaders of our time in, you know, that we know of or learned about growing up, whether it's Martin Luther King or other people, and they were very poetic. Um, of course they weren't leaders of giant corporations, they were leaders of movements, but there's, there's a symmetry there to me. And I feel like Wallace was, wasn't spouting nonsense. He had a vision, he had a plan, and he was talking about it. Uh, and I, I, found, I found most of what he said very fascinating, not just in a, from a, a poetic standpoint, but um, that he he knew what it would take to kind of further humanity. Um, good or bad. Yeah, <laughs> but with. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Sorry,
2: go ahead. No, it's, it's kind of like coming back to the old sayings, you know, that you've got to, you know, well, uh, it's not that old, mind you. Uh, who will do the hard things? He who can. You know, who can do the hard things? He who must. You know, uh, this is a guy who can do them, and he does them because he must. He does them because he sees what others don't see he sees the humanity is dead and dying it's doomed it's moribund on it's interesting that in 2036 he uses the phrase that uh, what we choose here today will either polish or crack the firmament now in biblical and religious terms the firmament was uh, where the waters the flood waters that that uh, that seal in the, the earth you know they believe that the sky above was the sea and that we were uh, sort of held here on earth by those things. What basically what he was saying to them there was, reinforcing the biblical terms, is that we can either stay here and polish the sky, polish this, this bubble that we live in and die, or we can crack that and and basically reach out uh, to the stars. Uh, and I think that he has, in the depths of, of this temple in which he lives, in the depths of, of his mind, in the depths of his genius and in the depths of his, for want of a better word, his insanity, uh, he, because he is definitely not sane by our standards, uh, but in the depths of his cold, logical insanity, then he is doing what he must. And nothing is beyond that. Uh, no life is beyond that. Whether it's the, the life of a, of a police officer, forget it. The life of a police captain, forget it. Deckard's life, forget it. I read an interview with him where he said that Denis Villeneuve actually said to him, using the Barracuda, you see inside Deckard. You see him for what he is. And he asked him, well, what what is he? And Villeneuve went away and then came back to him and said to him, only you know, so play it the way you want to play it. Villeneuve gave him that free reign to to either negate the mystery or perpetuate the mystery. And I, again, I, I I love that the fact that he this man sees inside people. How can you interact with people around about you when you can actually see inside them and know them for, for what they are at the most base cellular level? I mean that that would just do things to you. Um, and I think it goes a long way to explaining why he is the way he is it's
3: fascinating before we even know
0: what we are we fear to lose it happy birthday Shh.
3: now let's have a look at you
4: I think that, that it's, I love all that, and, and that goes right into, I, I continue to, what sticks with me most regarding the 2036 Nexus Dawn scene is sort of the, 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 the unnatural confidence he has of walking in that room. You know, he initially starts sort of like Pat, what Patrick said, as a monk, as, a, as sort of an enlightened by saying, you know, I, I appreciate your patience for my affliction, you know, sort of tones himself down. But then, uh, almost immediately, and uh, when they start going in the humans or the magistrates go right into um, going about, you know, this is uh, this is not up for debate. This is against the law. This is black and white. This is wrong. You know, his, his line that I just love and would love to use in real life someday in a courtroom <laughs> is just simply, yet here we are debating it. He knows there's a crack. He knows he has an in. And, you know, we can get more into um, because it's he who saved them. You know, it's it's just I, I love that sort of confidence that he has. And, you know, I never thought of it and would love to rewatch it now, knowing that, you know, although he doesn't have the Barracuda with him in that room, um, he does have a, a replicant. You know, and I always think that maybe he can see th- through them as well. Uh, who knows? But anyways, just the, that that unnatural um Again, um, an almost predatory confidence that he has in in every scene is something that just puts him above and again goes again, you know it just keeps going back to those biblical references.
3: I love it, yeah, his lack of um, physical, traditional vision is almost uh, a reciprocal of the amount of vision that he has for the big picture. And I think that that's part of what allows him to kill a replicant that he's created so easily, um, or have Rachel 2.0 dispatched so easily. Um, well, aside from the fact that they're replicants, but you know, Wallace gives me that feeling that, yeah, he would not have trouble ordering a human that was in his way killed either. And I think it's he has a vision for the entirety of the human race. And so that is so above and beyond any one person that there's just no one that's important as a a single individual to him, I think. He really uh, looks at things from a macro scale. Um, I wanted to point out a couple of things. Patrick and I were talking about this uh, earlier because I was looking at the scene with um, the Barracudas and the little tray of devices. And if you look closely, those devices all have different letters and numbers on them and some of them are in arabic some of them in in kanji i think in japanese it could be a different asian language i'm not super familiar but certainly different languages on there and so i was like somebody has got to have translated these and figured out what each of them says um no one that i could find has (laughs) so if any
2: i asked that on 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 my groups because there's there's some arabic there we got some really Uh high close-ups there's Arabic, there's uh, there's Chinese on on there. Uh, there's some kanji, as you said, and there's just some numbers. Some of them actually say the same thing and there's the same numbers repeated, the same characters. It's just a different color on on the button and a different arrangement where it might r- run along the bottom. it runs down the side. Uh, you know, so obviously it denotes that there's a different function to those, but, I just want to know what they do.
1: <laughs> right. I was did, really hoping we were about to get an answer to that, because I haven't fucking you not, that since October.
3: Yeah, did you not get any answers in terms no. of uh, translating no. the
2: characters? In? No, I mean, I mean we, we had no issues in getting the Korean and uh, the casino. That was translated, You know, I uh. think, is up for about 15 seconds after I put the question up. That was translated, and yeah, I was thinking, fantastic. You know, Maybe we can get these buttons translated now as well, but... Nothing. I think I'm going to have to put it back up on the group, and if I can get some answers, then I'll, I'll feed it back to you guys. Interesting. That's almost
4: something that you 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 wouldn't... Uh, my favourite thing about all these is is the unlimited... Answers And it's almost something where you right. where you hope it, you don't get them because it'd be so much more interesting. You know, for all we know, it could say garage door opener one, garage door opener two. <laughs> <It's>,
3: and, <they're laughs> yeah, that's true. I
4: just I, I love not knowing about that. But I also appreciate, you know, trying to get in there and get those answers. But yeah.
1: Uh, well, well. And because, you, you know, Wallace wouldn't name the garage door opener, garage door opener. Like, you know, <laughs> it would be called like, you know, the firmament rendering, you know, waterfall yeah. or something.
3: Right. Um, um, let me let me real quick, just to finish my point uh, on what Patrick and I were talking about earlier. So Patrick turned me on to reading a little bit more of the script, which I haven't read in its entirety. I've kind of browsed it um because we were trying to get some answers on these buttons. And so um I'll, and we'll put we'll put the script in the show notes, even though you could Google it and find it online very quickly. but um, so of course the the fish are called barracudas. The different buttons are called halos. Um, he, asks for um in the script he asks when he's looking I believe when he's looking at the replica the newborn he asks for the one for micronics whatever that means uh the place where he puts it behind his ear that receptacle is called the flash shoe um and it connects to his lamboidal suture mm-hmm. so there, there you have all And, and I should,
1: on. I should say that the flash suit, the, the flash shoe is a photography term. That's what you call the yeah. thing that, that an external flash would connect to on top of yeah. the camera. Oh, okay. Which cool. is interesting, yeah. And it's exactly what that, that receptacle looks like, too. So it probably actually was one.
2: Maybe yeah. it's because it enlightens him. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. <A bit>. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, are any of you guys uh, comic geeks? A little because bit. I, I of know, course, I, yeah. I know what i wanted those buttons to do i mean when i first saw him in nexus dawn my dream was that this guy was actually going to be tyrell and he was inhabiting a replicant body he would be somewhere in his this damaged cradle because i knew that they i knew that there was going to be echoes i knew that they were going to be uh, bringing in the, the original uh, uh, opening scene to blade runner and that they were going to be using that and i thought well maybe they're going to bring in the fact that Terrell is alive in this sort of like cryostasis. Maybe this is why he doesn't have eyes. And I had this dream that this thing that he had inside of his neck actually allowed, allowed him to body hop and that every replicant that he created, basically he could hop into their body, almost like, a, you know, like Alan Moore's... Uh, in the Miracle Man series, uh, Alan Moore created this alien race, the keys who have this, these body wardrobes. And this is before uh, Altered Carbon had come out and you know, we had the whole thing of sleeving, uh, which sort of like echoed the same sort of process. But I would have loved for him to be Tyrell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know so why. Cool. My question is, do, we, do you guys feel like Wallace is a villain? Because I don't feel that way necessarily.
2: No, I, I, I don't see him as a villain. We make angels.
3: In the service of civilization. Yes, there were bad angels once. I make good angels now. That is how I took us to nine new
0: worlds.
4: Yeah, again, on, on first viewing, I thought, here's, here's their villain. Um, much like, you know, Kay, here's here's your hero. Um, but no, no, not now. Now I see him as a, a very, very complicated um, savior of sorts. Um, and it, it it leaves you, I think, with more questions than answers as to thinking about what it is he's trying to do here. So definitely no longer... A villain if anything he's he's one of my new heroes <laughs> in the in the movie and i look forward to his scenes more than just about anyone
2: i i feel exactly the same way as i said in the opening i think he's the most interesting character in the entire movie and that's as much for his motivation and what every little thing he does you get the impression that this is a guy who you know that tesla uh, when Tesla was, was creating things, he planned and experimented in his own head before he even started in a laboratory. And this is the reason why there are so few notes, uh, supposedly extant, of, of uh, devices that he worked upon. But uh, he, he was quite famous in this genius, this memory palace that he inhabited. Can you imagine the size of the memory palace that Wallace inhabits? If you imagine the the information that's crammed in there, the genius that's, that's crammed in there, you know, the, the, this is a guy who, he, he's, he's just, he's on another level and to simply categorize him as a villain, I think uh, it kind of like cheapens the whole thing for me uh, he's, he's as much a villain as Roy Batty was or as Deckard yeah, yeah, was yeah, I, mm, for me Deckard was more of a villain than Roy Batty so. yeah, yeah
1: well, I, no, I, I was I was thinking Roy Batty too, as as a, as a character who's set up as what you would think would be an antagonist, who actually ends up kind of revealing himself to be so much more complicated than that. But yeah, somebody else yeah. was about to say something. I don't mean to cut you off. Sorry.
4: Oh no, I was just gonna, Patrick. I'd love you to continue that thought because I, I I've always enjoyed your your takes on on Roy. So I'd love to just hear you kind of wax poetic for a moment on on Roy. Well,
1: well, thank you, So go ahead. Go, do well, <laughs> I, waxing poetic in the context of a Neander Wallace conversation is tough, so I'm going to have to keep it real. I think. <laughs> um, but uh, I, 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 what I think is so cool about Wallace is that he exists on a continuum, and he starts off clearly as a hero. So, in, in the events of this of the universe, as as quoted in that timeline that they put out before the movie came out, um, so he was born in 2001. Uh, in 2025, he pioneers the advancements in the in GMOs, et cetera and he basically saves the world. So he's 24 years old when that happens. By 2028, when he's 27, he buys what's left of Tyrell. In the 2030s, he improves upon the genetic engineering and memory implantation methods, and so he makes replicants obedient. Um, and then in 2036, the prohibition is repealed, and he and Wallace introduces this new line of, quote-unquote, perfected replicants in Nexus 9. So between 2025 and 2036, it's only 11 years, but he goes from being basically this prodigy in his 20s, who's described in the official Blade Runner Timeline as idealistic, to being this complete paradigm-shifting figure. And I think what what I I've really enjoyed about this conversation, in which you've all elucidated so beautifully, is that he's attained a sort of omniscience. And I think we don't really see that in movies very frequently. And that's part of why he's so hard to pin down. You know, we see echoes of that, for example, in Citizen Kane or there will be blood. A lot of these movies where we see, especially men in these situations become so powerful that they kind of elevate themselves above what we consider to be human in a way. And they, and they all invariably lose their minds. Uh, Spoiler alert for people who haven't seen Citizen Kane yet. Um, I think what's (laughs) great about, about Wallace is that he has lost his mind, but in losing his mind, he's gained some sort of third eye. And I think uh, – like uh, that Ian, that was beautifully said about how you you can't even imagine the memory palace that this man holds within himself because for one thing – I mean the – so if, if any of you have ever done like memory palace exercises before, which, which I have and I'm horrible at it, um, it like the idea is – right, it's basically to go inside yourself and to physicalize an internal space and then to navigate that space and store memories in it. And th- the idea being that if you can remember how to find the memories in that internal physical space, you can retrieve them basically photographically because they're still there intact, but you just have to archive, you have to know where you've archived it basically. Sort of like Tyrell, you know, he's a data hoarder, Um, not Tyrell Wallace, Ooh, that, was a, that was a slip. So um, it kind of fits into that whole thing, I think. So you, you can only imagine this dude who has, in the span of 15 years basically, gone from being just this young idealistic scientist to having saved the world basically twice because he pioneered the genetic genetically modified organisms saved the food sources and then also gave us the ability to colonize planets even though you know it's not as many as he would like yet and then he's on the cusp of a third major revolution which is the idea that you can have replicants self-procreate and become essentially an independent race of servant beings for humans to use so like what what that would do to somebody, I think, is such a fascinating question. And Jamie, what you were saying before, I thought was really beautiful. You were mentioning how um, he speaks the way that we think of these sort of very important iconoclastic figures like Martin Luther King and you know um, JFK. The, these these great orators, you know Abraham Lincoln. Um, but what's interesting is that they didn't speak like that when they were alone in a room with a servant. You know what I mean? Like like I I, I have a hard time imagining. Martin Luther King being so eloquent and using you know chiasmus and these literary devices when he's just basically you know dictating what his chores are for the day that he has to get done. But Wallace is totally cut off from everything. I, I, he's like in his own complete inner space. And so he always talks like that in this elevated rhetoric and this symbolic sim- symbolic language that means so many different things and sounds so ridiculous on one hand and beautiful on the other hand and he also lastly I don't going on and on here but um I think it's interesting that he speaks completely non-scientifically um I, I mean I I'm friends with many scientists and none of them speak anything like this and I think it's interesting that he has sort of passed some threshold where he no longer talks in scientific terms he doesn't surround himself with visible instrumentation other than the implants on the on the uh, the flash shoes on his neck he's basically become this completely inner realized being who when externalizing his skill set is able to save the universe and I th- I think he's so complicated
0: and he's also bought it himself uh he's clearly believed he believes that he's some type of god um the he has saved humanity um he's you know provided uh you know a, a new a whole new generation of of replicants to build things to create things to you know, to, you know, get off world and explore new worlds and all of these things. So he is as much of a God as he could possibly be. And he he believes it. So I think it makes a little bit of sense to me that where he's surrounded by replicants, they don't know any better. They only know what kind of their program to know. So to him, I mean, you look at love when he's, when she's in his presence, she's almost not physically, but she's almost with her eyes bowing to him, um, at every moment, well, every opportunity. And she actually, even in the script,
1: um, it says uh, beyond respect, she lives in perpetual awe of him. Absolutely, you can so totally she, see it. She's in such awe that she shakes. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I got awe and terror from her. I mean, oh it, yeah. It, when the tear drops from her eye, the eye twitch, which is a common thing. You, you see the in twenty thirty six Nexus Dawn when he uh, orders the replicant to to harm him, its eye twitches. It, sorry, did I just say that? Gosh, it reveals a prejudice inside myself. <laughs> his, his eye twitches, and it's, it's, it's the right eye exactly the same way that love's eye twitches when she commits oh. these awful acts which she is not meant, you know, by, by their programming, she's not meant to be doing. And I, I kind of got the impression that some small part of her knows that, she is so terrified of this man, at the same time this she is so enthralled by him and loves him so much, so, be- so beyond words, that she she will do anything for him. You know, it's this mu- cult of personality to the nth degree.
3: Yeah, the script describes her as um in fear of disappointing him, more specifically.
0: I wonder if she's even been programmed to in awe of him, um, because the, everything is learned. Did she learn that, or did she, you know, like, did he make her that way so that she is in awe of him? And I want to go back to something, uh, a kind of a question that I have. In my mind, it's a little bit of a conundrum, um, where you see Wallace going over the new replicant, you know, woman, and, you know, he's saying all of these things, and he obviously is checking to see if she has the ability to procreate an of course, it, what it appears to be is that she cannot procreate. So, we, of course, we he, he kills her um, because that seems to be his only use for her. Um, but he's talking in these terms of we, and he's using we and like he's a replicant. Um, but he's talking about harnessing this this power of instead of having to create all these replicants, they are creating themselves. And my question is: so does that mean he'll have ownership of these new like? So whenever replicants have children, he's still the owner. Like I I didn't know what his end was because when love is talking to Joshi, um she's kind of like defending or explaining to Joshi why it's so important, why it's so monumental that this replicant had a child like, don't, you know, you can't hold the tide with a broom. Like this is, this is the fabulous new, but it seemed like love had a different idea of what was going to happen. Like for her, it was revolution for Neander. It was control. It was, you know, it was a, a a way to produce replicants. Expansion. Yeah. Total expansion. But I, I, he he talks, he uses the term we in reverence in some ways, but then he has them kill themselves or he kills them themselves or, you know, uh, love kills Rachel 2.0, completely indiscriminating. No one bats an eye. Um, so I, I'm, I don't know if he is, has reverence for what he creates. Cause he says angels like they're angels, but you don't kill an angel. You don't kill something you think is sublime or or sacred. Yet he does. So I don't unless know really, unless
2: you're God. Unless and you're really,
0: God, but I don't well, even even God in the Bible doesn't didn't kill the angels. They killed themselves.
2: Well, well, the thing is, if uh, coming back to you know what I I, I mentioned in the, the notes that you guys were kind enough to to discuss amongst yourselves, I think maybe to some extent in, in uh, loving love. Um, Angels, in Biblical terms, in terms of the Old Testament, where this guy lives inside his head, angels are not fluffy beings that stop cars from knocking you down if you're tuned to their... To their your chakras are tuned to their auras, by through crystals you've got in your, in your homes. Angels are terrible beings. They don't even look human. Their aspect is awful to behold. Some of them only appear in terms of voices. You have whirling giant wheels of fire, which have a million eyes, You know, the, the, and angels cleansed the earth of all life, uh, almost uh, in the beginning. Angels drove man out of Eden. Angels slew the firstborn and brought the plagues. They did all these things. They helped Moses reach the promised land by laying waste to civilizations through the angel of death being trapped inside the Ark of the Covenant. So in biblical terms, angels are terrible things they are things that you only send when there's either something monumental about to happen as in the son of god is about to be born or as in i must smite my foe and grind him into the dust so when he uses the term angels to me i hear something else other than these perfect beings i hear that you know these are beings that will allow him to exert absolute control over the human race. And I kind of, so, sorry to, to go on about this, but I, I kind of have this idea in my head and it comes back to the whole Alan Moore Miracle Man thing. In that, you know, one of the, the, the creators of the, the, the Miracle Men, as, as they were, is this character, Dr Garganza. And you find out that uh, as the, the story goes on, that he created this kind of like hyper evolved human being from alien tech not because he wanted to help humanity, but because he wanted to create a perfect vessel for him to inhabit and to become immortal. And I wouldn't be surprised if Neander Wallace somehow, somewhere at the back of his mind, didn't have that sort of same mindset. And that you know, like once this shell that I inhabit is gone, I will have unlimited, and, and the more hybrid they are, the more you know, sort of human they are, the better the chances if he is a human the chances for him to kind of like go on and be this eternal God I believe in life
3: in fact I have wrung more life from our earth than ever before but it is dying you are dying which
2: brings us to
4: our present concern that's Again, Ian, I love it. I love it. Um, (laughs) I'm going to take a page out of of Dan's book here, and and if this doesn't work, I'm I'm sorry. But um, I just returned from a trip out west. Uh, I I nearly missed um, being able to hang out with Dan for a minute, but we couldn't get that to work. But I did stay for a a minute in in Portland, so today I was listening to a a Portland-based band called The Thermals. And I'm always interested in, in sort of a religious take on things. I, I grew up and went to a all boys Catholic school. So I sort of have always the sort of religious tint to things in my in the back of my mind. I may not be a a, a Catholic any longer or practicing or but it, there's just it's always sort of bugging never, me in never. the in the back of my mind. Um, but there's a song um, that this band has, and I just wanted to read a couple of, of the lyrics here. And uh, w- what this is in is that it's the story of of the Old Testament God and his story of of Noah. Um, and they just couch it in such a layman's sort of terms, and it's just it's hitting every every button here as as Ian's talking and as Jamie's talking and as Patrick and Dan. Everyone's sort of talking about all these issues, and it's, it's just really interesting. So I'm ju- I'm gonna read this if it doesn't work. Um, Let's edit it out, but it's just, it's very very interesting. So the song begins saying, God reached his hand down from the sky. He flooded the land. He set it on fire. He said, fear me again. No, I'm your father. Remember that no one can breathe underwater. Moving on, it says, God reached his hand down from the sky. God asked Noah if he wanted to die. He said, no, sir. No, sir. God said, here's your future. It's going to rain. So we're packing our things, we're building a boat, we're gonna create the new master race because we're so pure, oh Lord, we're so pure, here's your future. And what that just screams to me is the entire Wallace um, coming down from the sky in the 2036 Nexus Donnie comes down in his spinner. Um, He says, hey guys, remember, um, no one can can eat without me, without my technology. I I I engineered this. I love that he uses the 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 phrase. I wrung life from this planet. More, I think it's something to the effect of more so than you know should have ever been done. You know he's squeezing Earth and he's he's done everything he can, and now he's asking the the magistrates if they want to stay here on Earth and die. Um, they say no. And he says, "Well, here's your future. It's gonna rain, you know. Take take what you want from that. With all the uh, Blade Runner, uh, the entire first movie being in the rain. Um, and now we're packing our things, building a boat, and here we are with the new master race. And Wallace is here to to take everyone from the flooded, dead earth, and on. It's just that's how I sort of uh, view him in more recent viewings." as he's offering everyone the chance of this new life. Um, and I can't decide if, if he's the one tasking this, or again, is is going back again to biblical times, is, is he the son of God? Is he the son of Tyrell, um, paying for Tyrell's old sins of creating this race of replicants, and now Wallace is here to clean it up? But it's, it's so many questions, and it just keeps going along the term, and I don't want to, you know, keep the mic any longer but this I, it's all so interesting it's it's so hard to talk about it god
1: reached his hand down from the sky he blooded the lamb and he set it a fire
2: he said fear me again know i'm your father remember that no one can breathe underwater
1: I I, I think that's such a cool song, too. I love
3: that. I'd like to respond if I could. Um, Yeah, the more we talk about it, the more I don't see Wallace as any sort of uh, metaphorical descendant of Tyrell, but I see him on a whole other level, almost like in a pantheon of gods, um, Wallace is on a much, much higher level than Tyrell. Tyrell did not affect the world and humanity in the way that Wallace has. Um, You know, he, Tyrell, essentially had a commercial product that was relatively successful, but not without its problems, whereas Wallace has colonized nine other worlds, you know, and he's pushing and pushing and pushing. You know, and and it also makes me think, uh, we've talked about it before, about trying to interpret these biblical lines that Wallace quotes or says And the term we, because every time he says we, you're trying to analyze, well, what does he mean by we? Does he mean humanity? Does he mean us replicants because he's a replicant? Um, Does he mean us at the Wallace Corporation? And, you know, the more I think about it and the more I realize that the closer you get to a replicant that can reproduce and these more advanced models, the more you're getting close to that concept that people have talked about before where maybe eventually an evolution – there would be a Homo replicans essentially becoming a new species of human, um, and so it's quite possible that Wallace views it as th- these are the final steps in merging the two species and just creating a new humanity and then continuing to colonize, you know, the rest of the universe.
2: That, that's, um, the way, that's the way I see it. That's, that's, that's right. the only yeah I, I can read this whole idea that you know that there will be millions so we can be trillions. Right, you know, they can only produce. Naturally, uh, there's no other sense to that because humanity, ha- their numbers are so limited. For us, you know, he he has millions of of children. He has millions of. He, well, he describes in that way. He has millions of children, and he needs this kind of uh, almost the, the thinking in terms of it, this this cauldron of life, uh, this uh, creature with a womb you know, that, that that can replicate. You know, uh, naturally, as opposed to being born out of a bag, you know, he, uh, if, if he can only get hold of that, then that is the key to the stars. But yeah, yeah there'll be control there. I, I still think that he will control everything and that when you look at the, the, the food market, just about every brand there is, uh, if not every single brand that you see there other than Coca-Cola is a Wallace product. You know, so th- these are, uh, uh, this is him still feeding humanity right up until this point. And, you know, so you wonder what they eat in the off-world colonies. Do they, you know, do they farm naturally or is it is it Wallace products? I, I know we don't know that, but he is so massively rich that you can't imagine that it could be anything other than that. Um,
3: yeah, the first trillionaire on earth, supposedly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, can I ask you guys, sorry, just to, to wander off a little bit. It's just we were talking about hybridization there. Have any of you guys, uh, you know, have you spoken about his name very much? As in where, you know, the possible meanings of his name and yes. where it's come from?
0: I don't think we have on an episode before, but I... Let's do it. I don't know if it was me and Patrick or me and Dan, but we looked up his name um, or the, the the name Neander um, and the root. Okay,
2: could I just speak a little bit about Oh about sure. was... Uh, Alfred Russell Wallace was the, the co discoverer of natural selection, and he's the father of biogeography. Uh, the Wallace line between Australia and Southeast Asia and fauna. He was the first person to discern that uh, the, the same species would evolve along separate lines in uh, biodiverse. Uh, uh, so- knock
4: it off, you're killing me. It okay. was amazing. <laughs>
2: The Wallace effect the, the Wallace effect though says that where natural selection increases reproductive isolation between two populations of the same species and it encourages development of barriers against hybridization and that's still a recognized biological effect today in biogeography so the Wallace effect uh, you know, the, the, as soon as I heard his name I thought Alfred Russell Wallace because you know he, he's he's often missed out he was actually. Uh, co-published with Darwin, and he's the man who actually kick-started Darwin to sail away off in the Beagle and uh, and do what he did. Um, he's he's often forgot about by history in the same way that uh, Tesla's forgotten about uh, with, with electrical discoveries and the like. But uh, for me, I, I can't see any other reason for them to use the name other than uh, to pay homage to this man.
3: Yeah, I mean, in my much more simple mind of view, the only connection I saw was uh, is it the Walfords? What's the family that owns Walmart and Walgreens and all that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is the the that, Waltons, is
2: it, yeah. Waltons, Waltons.
3: Waltons thank yeah. you. So to me, just the prefix wall makes me think of sort of this gigantic conglomerate corporation that is starting to just own everything and everyone and everybody works for them, you know, so <laughs> I saw it from that point of view. Yours is a lot deeper.
2: <laughs> in, in, in closing, on, on, on uh, regard to Wallace, he formulated, the first law that he formulated was called the Sarawak Law, and it still exists to this day, and it's while he was out, uh, he was trying to figure out why there was this uh, difference, this this line that exists between Southeast Asia and Australia. And at one stage, you're talking about a, a stretch of water that's only 22 miles wide, but birds will not cross it. So you have birds of the same uh, general species, but they have evolved along different lines, separated by 22 miles. The only animals that will cross it are bats. But what he said to the Sarawak Law is that every species has come into existence, uh, coincident both in, in time and space with a closely allied species. And I think that this is what he sees with humans and replicants. And you know, this is the, what they're talking about—the you know, the wall breaking down. You know, this is the, you know, what what Joshi's afraid of. He is enervated by, you know, what she what terrifies her, and by extension, presumably the magistrates that would sit in authority above the the, the police. He wants to grab hold of that and run with it. That's the way I see it. Oh, I, I
4: love that also because I. Uh, I I don't know if I've I've made this clear in the in the last episode I, I was guest on, but I really do not see eye to eye with these sort of these rebel replicants. Um, Frasia and her group. I don't understand their their <laughs> just to put it terms and not be sort of philosophical, but I just don't know what their problem is. Um, if there's this 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 child out there and uh, Wallace by obtaining the child and learning how to um, create replicants that can then procreate themselves, I don't understand why it is that they um, have a problem with that. I understand that they believe he's he's, he's evil. That they will that he hopes to um, control them, um, and then you know in some ma- manner control creation um, by obtaining um, the child. But in the same way, if they do not allow him—the one person that has created them, that has controlled um, this technology—to do it, then aren't they doomed to fail? And that's sort of how I see, you know, your your theory that you've expounded on, Ian, is just so—it's it's blowing my mind. Um, <laughs> in that, you know, he, he sees, I think, the bigger picture, um, where both the humans in Joshi talking about how it breaks the world. And then also in this gang of replicants, in their attempts to stop Neander, um, in a sense, they're dooming themselves as well. So the humans are dooming themselves by not allowing there to be more replicants. And these rebel replicants are dooming themselves in that um, not allowing their creator to create a replicant who can do it again. Well, in let, sort let of me very push, simple
0: terms. Let me push back on you for a little bit, uh, sure, do Peter. Sure, uh, The replicants are, they have a whole different... They want to be a free people. They are slaves. That's their yeah. angle. And what happens is their their babies that they can have are commerce. They're not their own they, they don't have their own agency. So there's yes, they see that maybe they have a creator, but their creator in their eyes is malevolent. Their creator only wants to use them to conquer other worlds, whereas they're like, we just want to be free. So that's that's their impetus. And I and I think kind of K is caught in the middle of that, um, and you know, as you know, to relate it to human history, certainly American history, um, slaves in this country were brought together and bred, and uh, then once women had babies, the men were shipped off uh, to uh, essentially like 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 uh, cows, like studs because they they did their duty and they're more profitable with a slave that can have their own essentially that can kind of make more slaves for them that's yep. and so the the replicants have a huge problem as they should because they're not slaves and they shouldn't be slaves and they are human um now the only pro- the problem I see with the replicants is they are almost they they're making a fatal human flaw which is we're better than them. Um, and that's what I see Freza and all of those other replicants. They're not just saying, oh, we're equal and and we 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 want to be free. They're saying, we want to be free and we're equal and we're better than you and we're coming for you. And I feel like that's kind of, that's where Kay doesn't want to go. So there's my supplication. Yeah, I,
4: I love that. I love that, Jay.
0: I
3: see both your points. I knew
0: exactly
3: that, I, you know, I, I knew that uh, Jamie's mind was gonna go exactly to that place, and I think you both have a good point. It's just from different viewpoints, but both things are happening at the same time, meaning there's a subjective sense of the replicants being a slave race, essentially, and wanting to break free from that. I see it in practical terms as a race. This is a race for control of a secret, meaning that if the rebels can get to it first, they can take the child, escape somewhere, find out a way to pass on this procreation gene or whatever it is, then they can control their own destiny away from their masters. If Wallace can get to it and contain it, he can keep the key to himself and have this secret and continue to create these replicants that are essentially sterile. So, while American slaves, any kind of slave really, but since we're talking about American history, while the American slave population had to be kept confined because any slaves that could escape could start a family, create their their own life, you know, go somewhere else, whatever. Uh, they weren't, as a rule, I don't think, um, blanket sterilized. I'm sure that happened, but it wasn't something that happened to all of them. Whereas. By default, replicants are born sterile. So if some of them escape and a, and a Blade Runner can't get to them, it's no big deal. Because eventually, whether they have a four-year or a 60-year lifespan, their time will run out and that'll be that. Um, but if replicant, if a, grou- a rebel group of replicants can get away with this secret somehow, they can essentially create their own world. I think that's where they're looking at that wall breaking down and having their own agency and creating their own destiny and leaving the entire really not just wallace but the entire human race behind
2: sorry but the problem with that is that they already have the child so they already have that gene and, and they're doing nothing with it other than they want a figurehead to start a war and the other thing is they've to- they've been really uh, sorry I, I don't know if you guys ever swear in this but you know these they've been really kind of crappy shall i just say it, uh, to, to this <laughs> you can swear but-
0: you can say <laughs> shitty <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
4: I've already dropped
1: an F-bomb on this no, episode. Uh, okay.
4: Yeah, Ian, Ian, I'll just go ahead and say it. They're a bunch of
2: dickheads, especially yeah, the I mean, kid. They, I mean, they want him to do all the work
4: for them. So go, they, keep going, keep
2: going. They, they've taken this child, and they've fostered her with a human family, and they've told her, you have this condition, and you must live behind glass for the rest of your days. And she doesn't know any better, and they couldn't give a shit because all they see is figurehead for our war. They don't care about her. They don't care about her destiny, they don't care about her fate, the life that she could have had out, you know, from behind that glass, the children she could have had by now if she was living out behind that glass, they don't care. All they want is control of her. And they're driven by this hatred and by revenge, the whole thing about the fields of Calantha. In the fields of Kalantha, they realised that they were fighting and killing one another. This terrible foe that they were they were they were fighting against day and night. It was other replicants, and that's why they hate humans. That's why they're so happy. They're so willing to send Kay off. I, I'm sorry, I don't actually like calling him K. I prefer to call him Joe, but that's just me. They're so mm-hmm. willing to send Joe off to 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 kill Deckard with not even a second's thought, you must go and kill him, you must be our tool, we'll use you as well. You know, he's used you, we'll use you, but we'll dress it up in that the most human thing you can do is die for another. It's bullshit. You know, they're just, they've learned the wrong things from their human overseers. Not from Wallace, from the human overseers, because I don't think he cares very much for, for money I mean, if, if you look at the inside of his temple that he lives in there, that, that tiny little wooden horse, that would have got uh, them a, a real horse, according to the, the scientists that they had analysed that. Have you seen how much wood and water is in that place that he lives in? I mean, mm-hmm. it's vast, it's monolithic, and everywhere you look, there's wood, there's stone, there's water. Look at the purified water shower that he has to take. Think about how scarce pure water is. He's got a bloody lake round about him in his living room. You know, so he is vastly wealthy. He doesn't care about wealth. He, you know, it, it means nothing to him. What he cares about is this purity of concept, which is the survival of the human species. And if that means hybridization, if that means expanding out into stars, that's what he wants. They don't get that. Neither side gets that. Either the humans or the the replicant would be warriors. Uh, you know th- that's why I'm, I'm glad that, that Joe wasn't the child. But,
0: but Ian, uh, let me ask you. So, do you think the replicants, Freja, and the replicants who want to plan an uprising or whatever, you think that that they should understand better what? Neander was trying to do. Is that what you're saying?
2: No, I, th- I, th- I think that they've learned the wrong things from humans. As I say not from him because they'll, they'll never had any contact with him, but from the humans that, that who commanded them, who sent them off to, who bought them and sent them off to to slaughter. They've learned hate, they've learned disdain, they've learned superiority. So they believe that they are better, and they they likely are a better race than, than humanity. They're certainly bigger, tougher, stronger, faster, whatever else, but they're barren, and they could be doing something about that, and they don't. They don't see the bigger picture, so to speak, of how they could they could themselves be freeing replicants. And instead, they seal it up in a bloody glass bubble. Some yeah, but, of- yeah oh, I
4: gotta... Go ahead.
3: I, I gotta push back on this for a little bit. So what you're saying is true, Ian, but I think that there are certain assumptions that we can't make about their plans and about their motives because the story just hasn't developed far enough. In fact, we've well, talked about it
2: before. <laughs> War, you know, so I mean, you know, war is what, what they want, they, they, they really want to overthrow the the, the humans or over, so Right, overthrow- well they're,
3: I mean they're freedom fighters, right? What's the old yeah. quote, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter? And I agree that on a personal scale, what's happening to Anna Staline, where she's probably being lied to about a condition just to keep her there. Um, Yes, they care less about her than the um, outcome of their entire race. I think that's very similar to Wallace in the sense that he's willing to kill a replicant right in front of him to work towards this ulterior goal where the end justifies the means. Um, But that may have been because they're building up their forces and waiting until – that. because right now she's a secret. She's in hiding, right? They know where she is and they've – I don't think they're keeping her there due to not wanting to do anything with her i think they're keeping her there until they have the resources to take her to you know to take a big group of them and either yeah whether it's starting a war or whether it's creating a big escape kind of the way batty escaped on a small scale with a few replicants um you know again we we can only speculate as to what their plans are but um you know you can call it cruel or you can call it immoral but i think it's I see it as an end justifies the means type of thing. I mean, we are talking about an enslaved race who is trying to do what they can to get themselves to a different place of existence. Let's not forget that when we talk about them learning from humans um, how to act and the fact that Kalantha was a war between replicants and replicants, let's not forget that ostensibly— Wallace has sold all of those replicants to the corporations and the nations or the factions that have used them, whether they're pleasure models or whether they're combat soldiers. Um, he might he may be so rich he doesn't care about the income, but he still is willing to sell replicants at the highest bidder. It's still a business, and that's how it works. And he admits as much um, – I forget in what line, if somebody can help me, where he says um, – you know whatever they're willing to pay or however much they're willing to pay or something like that so
2: you said about the freedom fighters the end justifies the means it's the same for him morality in, in, sure. in this film morality is just a matter of perspective
1: it is. But I'm at just... the same time, but it's it's also – it is a matter of perspective, but it's also a matter of place in society. For Wallace, it's very different because he's basically at the uppermost echelon of, of everything. So the utilitarian things that he's espousing make sense for him because he's in a position to basically save the world because he is looked at as the savior of it. Whereas replicants I – mean, keep in mind, this is 27 years after the blackout. They've been driven underground, hunted out in every corner of the world, um, basically expunged, illegalized. Uh, completely outlawed and then rebuilt as a subservient race, um, even worse than they had been previously. So for them, it, it's although there is a utilitarian aspect to what they're doing insofar as they don't see anything wrong with holding Anastaline up in a, in a wall basically so that she could be protected until they're ready to mobilize their forces and overthrow their oppressors. But it's very different because they're doing this all completely underground with zero power. And I think it's important to to keep in mind the positions of power that these two factions are in, you know, vis-a-vis each other. So, you know, you have basically the, the, the ruling class and you have this sort of (laughs) almost like a proletariat, but even, even more so than that, they, they're basically um, an outlawed slave race trying to gain some degree of autonomy by overthrowing their oppressors. But also, uh, I think that it's—I I, I think that they're—I mean, Deckard vocalizes very clearly that he personally was trying to avoid um, having Staline be detected because he knew that she would be dissected and taken apart and studied. And I do think that although— I don't think there was necessarily this sort of deep benevolence in what the replicants are doing by hiding her away. I think that part of it is that they're trying to make sure that nothing happens to her until until the time comes. And if they had been like just, you know, go out in the world and pretend like you're not this hybridized miracle and do whatever you want and we'll find you in 35 years or whatever, I think it would be very different. I think they have to as for their own survival as a, as a type of of being they have to protect her until they're in a position where they've built back up enough in the wake of the blackout to have some sort of power to be able to rival what's going on in the ruling class. I, I think that I think that they basically—I uh, don't think they're, they're, that they're doing it out of malevolence. I think it's—it's it's more that they—they they need to do something to protect no, this no, no. asset.
2: Sorry, I'd like, I'd like to clarify what I said. I, I'm I'm not saying that Wallace is right, and I'm not saying that the, that they are bad guys either. What I'm saying is, in this movie, it's very difficult to say, you know, who is entirely bad and who is entirely good. Uh, you know, you have uh, sort of several doses of of both on on either side. You know, arguably more so. You you say the 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 bad with. Wallace and his sort of uh, machinations and the way he he controls and makes a resource out of the, the the replicants but that's the to me that's the scientist in him it's the fact that you know, he sees them as as a something that's produced to be born is to have a soul you know that, that's the the line from the movies so therefore uh, these i mean f- for for joe to say that in the first place suggests to me that this is something that's almost programmed into them at birth you know that they that to be born is to have a soul. Therefore, you have no soul. You know you are you are owned. You are, uh, and what that would do to, as you say, to a, a slave race which is driven underground and who are subject to uh, extermination without trial as soon as they're detected. You know there, there's no there's no plea bargaining here. There's no locking them up. For, they're, they're just exterminated by their own kind, only improved. So yeah, I mean I, I can understand how that that would. Do things to them, and how they yes, to an extent they want to to uh, protect Anna, uh, but they've also the religious side of things comes back into it there. because when you hear the reverence in the way that Sapper and Fraser both speak about, uh, they, they witnessed a miracle, and it's it's transformed them from just your r- routine battlefield replicants into almost like prophets of. Uh, a new age to come for all of of uh, replicant kind. I, I'm not sure what the, what's the plural. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and to, to
4: take a step back from all this, I think uh, one of the most wonderful things about this, this movie and the original movie itself are, I mean, all that we've just had this uh, amazing discussion about is bookends to the characters that we end up, and and you, you know, referencing the the hosts, you guys, um, and and Mike also talk about most are the characters that are are sort of in the middle of all this. You know, we're we're talking so much about this, and it's it's so great that this world that that Vinil and and everyone had created is that you know you have these two great factions, and you don't know, and you can identify with both. Yet the people that we identify the most with are the ones navigating through it. You know, Kay, who's not—he's not a rebel. In fact, the rebels, you know, almost see him as crew expendable, to use uh, a perfect organism uh, reference. Um, <laughs> and, and and Joy, who's sort of his his uh, his love and, you know, they both use each other or, or gain knowledge from each other. And, and you also have love who's sort of in the middle of this between the two sides. And it's just so great that, you know, the people that we identify with the most are these people between these sort of opposites. And, I you know, are they really opposites? I think they all sort of have the same general goal in mind which is its survival and removal from this isolation but it, I, I love that you know the real characters that we seem to invest the most in our are, are, are k joy love and all the characters in between deckard it's just uh, this this has been great been
0: and, great and the question i know uh, we probably want to wrap up soon but there's a question i think that that k is mulling over in his head What's the right thing? And I think that's a question that we all ask ourselves when we're presented with the next stage of our life, the next chapter, whatever. What's the right thing? And I I want to kind of bring it back a little bit to um, Fraser and the replicants and kind of compare it a little bit to the idea of a Messiah. And in the Bible... Uh, there was a Messiah that was prophesied to come. The Jews had their idea of what that Messiah was going to do. The Jews had the idea that Messiah was going to have a sword, and he was going to kill their enemies, and it was going to be storming, you know, um, the Romans and taking, you know, taking back their own freedom. And I think Frasa and the replicants, uh, who stood with her, were kind of those people. They wanted to bring a revolution. That's what they wanted the Messiah, which is Anna in in, in many ways to be. Um, and I think Deckard saw Anna, I'm sorry, Kay saw Anna as something a little bit more akin to Jesus. Like this isn't, that's not why she's here. She's here yes. because she, you know, she, she has a father who loves her and that's what, that's what is most important is bringing her to her father. Um, so there's this, and at the same time, I can't say that what the replicants, the, you know, Fraser and the replicants, what they wanted is a bad thing. You know, I mean, as someone who is a descendant of slaves, I know and understand fully the idea of being, of mobilizing and, you know, and taking up arms against the people who, who, have cap you know who have been your your owners and your captors and at least with American history slaves were considered part human, with, in three in fifths. the yeah three-fifths human so in Blade Runner universe they're not only not human you can tell them to kill themselves if you want to, um, or kill each other which is even worse so these people aren't even they're not even just slaves they are a slaves to themselves. You know, you can go and use them like garbage. You can go and have sex with them as many times as you want to, and then leave. You can tell them to do all of these things. So these people are less than slaves. They are garbage. Um, uh, At least that's, you know, that's how I see them portrayed. So I, I really can't, I don't, I can't discount and not to say that Maybe you're doing this, Ian, and I know it's really been a great discussion. But I, I really think that, of course, they're gonna they're gonna want to rise up and take up arms against their oppressors. Who wouldn't when you're treated that way? Who wouldn't yes. when you're said when you are a human? You look like a human. You, everything about you is human, but you're then deemed not a human for some reason that you're you're you come into the world a little bit of a different way. So.
3: Yeah, I think Ian's argument was more that they were going about it the wrong way. Well, that... I, that's
2: that's what I mean. I, I, yeah. I, I think it's. I mean, I, I really, I, I was just I was trying to put, kind of play devil's advocate. The fact that, you know, like, are they purely good guys, or are you know, are they, are there things that they are doing that are wrong in and of, the, of themselves? Right. And you know, it, it could be argued. On a number of different levels, you know, whether it's the continuation of of the human species, or whether it's just the way that they are using Joe, the way they're, they're using uh, Anna to to an extent. When you speak about her being this figurehead, has anyone ever asked her? Does she even know what her fate is intended to be? This this quiet, shy girl who lives behind her glass bubble. You know, you know, we, we don't know. Uh, they, they, they've they've decided for her. She's a medical. She's theirs. And well see
0: I would actually even push against that too I don't know if she's theirs she has her own uh like company that she runs that she's the owner of she's in charge of her life yeah, she might live behind glass but if they might approach her I mean there, I don't think it's gonna be this thing where they are have ownership of her they hope that she gets behind their cause but they don't maybe she bought was sold a bill of goods like you're sick and you need to be you know you have the Galatian syndrome and you need to be behind this glass yeah. but that's no, that's pre. That's a, a, a supposition.
2: But I said when I said she's theirs, what I meant is she. She's you know she's their messiah. She's the thing that they have to protect the most. She's their treasure. She's their she's their medical, She's their figurehead. So that's what, totally. I mean, what I mean. Is oh, totally. totally. Yeah. not that that own her or that you know her. They, the they are controlling her to an extent. Yeah, yeah they, and I think that they have they, a, they have a but, certain. But,
0: but, What they're
2: doing is very human. Yes. It's it's very human. Well, they are human. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And that's what proves beyond a shadow of doubt that they are human. The fact that they can hate, the fact that they can love, the fact that they can feel loyalty for one another, that they can feel love for this being which has been born and which has given them hope. I mean, what is more human than to hope that that things can get better for you and for those who will come after you? I mean, again, I want to –
3: to me, I want to specify that I don't think any replicant is human. I think it's an evolutionary progression towards becoming human. I think in the life of any replicant that we've seen in both movies, um, they gain humanity and they gain empathy and they gain these human characteristics. I don't think they're to the point where you can describe them as human. We do it all the time. It's a very, very subtle – Thing, and it, and I'm not saying it's wrong or right. That's I'm just describing my yeah, view. Yeah,
2: I, th- I think this is where it comes back to, to Alfred Russel Wallace and his writings about, you know, like the, you've got uh, similar species, you know, like coexisting and, and developing uh, a- alongside one another, and whether hybridization occurs or not depends upon the barriers that are that are uh, put upon them by their environment. Uh, If the dividing line is going to be enslavement and it's going to be a commercialisation of them, then that's going to keep them from being hybridised. If they're going to be freed by whatever side, whether it's by uh, Wallace giving them the stars or whether it's Fraser giving them their freedom, uh, then, you know... uh, I, I think that that's the only way that that hybridization is going to occur. Other than that, uh, I think that you're going to have the, the two separate species coexisting. The wall, right? The well, dividing well, line. I would push I, back I, I a just, little
0: bit about. Yeah. I'll let you. I'm sorry, Patrick. Uh, I, I think, uh, and just in the in the in the realm that we're talking about in terms of human, I I have a hard time saying that they're not human. I don't think we have any. There's no why aren't they not human i i, I they're human um there's no yeah. reason they might be stronger and smarter but they're human i mean they they are human there's no if ands well, or but they're even marketed you know, that it, way it, they're, it they're it marketed, marketed that way defini-
3: it depends on your definition of people. Well, yeah
0: but you, i think you, the problem you, though is is that you can say oh they're not human it's like we're making that decision for them oh you're not human why
1: well but yeah but, but because cuz it, it's using the same it's the way that you taxonomize right like there there are certain genetic correlations between species where traits are shared and that's, and then they branch off from one another when those traits are not, or when, when they I, diverge.
2: And I think so that yeah.
1: there's a whole, the I whole the, procreative trait is missing. Yeah.
2: I would ask the question, are they homo sapien? No. Are they human? Yes. That's
3: another great way to put totally, it. Sure.
1: Totally. I can see well, that. Well, and, and, and this is what I was actually just about to say when we were talking about his name before, obviously I, I, everybody I know wants to talk about Neanderthals, but I, I do think that there's something important there because, uh, so so the the Neanderthal Valley in Germany um comes from this this um German priest slash um, hymnody composer whose last name was Neumann and then it was Greek transliterated from that into into Neander but it literally means in German new man and I think that it's so it's it's funny that we discovered um you know Homo neanderthalensis in that valley because uh, it, that was just it was it was not named for the fact that it was a new person it was named for the for the fucking actual geography where it was taken from but it and, ends up working so beautifully because it's a divergent species within the same genus that oh, we're it just in blew my mind so,
3: patrick i never knew that that's what that word meant
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and, well, and it's it's still there the uh, Neanderthal so, Valley. for so many years humanity thought that cro-magnon wiped out Neanderthal because they were different but now we know that they subsumed them so hybridization occurred
0: Mm. well and the
2: and the actual um
0: meaning or the one of the explanations is they are an extinct species or subspecies of archaic humans um, and they they died out as another species rose up.
2: That's
1: right but but they but they're, but they're but, in the same but, genus as we are, so it's the same divergence yeah, yeah, talking totally, about right? totally. their
2: genetic markers are found in europe the the, the genetic markers for, for Neanderthal are found uh, still in in regions of Europe.
3: We need more replicants than can ever be assembled, millions, so we can be trillions more. We could storm Eden and retake
0: I kind of want to wrap this up, but I want to, uh, but I want to make sure everyone gets their last comments in. But as we wrap it up, I want to kind of move back to, to Ian, and just kind of talk about. Uh, your entrance into the Blade Runner universe and then how the groups got started. But before we do that, let's just kind of if anyone has any last comments about that.
3: And do you mind if I go first just because I had one sentence that I wanted to put out for sure, the sure. group um, and I forgot to mention it. It's a little less philosophical than what we just got into. But um, I, when I watched Twenty Forty Nine uh, yesterday, I put the subtitles on during the Wallace scenes because sometimes you know he's a little muffled and it's hard to discern exactly what he's saying. But I was writing down some of his quotes. And the scene where Love comes to get him, she says, "A new model for review before shipment," and then he says, "Okay, a new model. Let's let's have a look or something like that." Now I thought about that for a second because I said, "Okay, Wallace is making." thousands of replicants, right? I don't know at what rate. There's no way that he has time to go review the creation of every single replicant, right? I mean, they're on some kind of manufacturing line. He would have other people under him doing that if there is that type of checks and balance. So there's a reason why he's being brought out to that specific newborn. And I don't think it's not explicitly stated, but I started to think, why is this replicant important? Like, why does the CEO of the company have to come check her out? So I started thinking: Is this a Nexus Ten, um, or was this is the reason why he's so visibly, you know, disgusted or upset at the fact that she's barren in particular? Is was this an, a scene that was showing the result of their first attempt to create a replicant that would reproduce? And then, of course, um, he's using that uh, what's the word the Micronic Halo to take a look at her and figuring out that. She's barren. So, I don't know. That is the first time I noticed that. And I feel I, like there was a lot there. So, I wanted to make sure I mentioned it before we close.
2: I don't think she's even the first. I think that this is an ongoing thing that he's got to mm-hmm, Totally. He's, he's, yeah. And she's a dip sample. You know, and, and he'll be. How, how many others has he done this to? How many other times has he just, you know, drawn a line across their belly and let their lifeblood run out in front of this, you know, this? perfect creature that, that he's created, who is in, who is still in awe of him, despite the, you know, the, the horror that's being unfolded before her eyes. Well, I, I think this is a new iteration
1: that's been presented to him as a result of some sort of R&D work. And this is like, this is the yeah. first of this new line, and, there, and he's hoping that it'll work. But I, I think right. it's also worth remembering that he does that knowing that uh, there has been this discovery and that Kay is on the trail of this child.
2: But a scientist
0: does do he that. know it at that point, though? I don't think he does. I yeah, that that's been no, he he
1: does. Because 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 as he puts the uh, the stuff away, the scalpel and everything, he's he's telling love that um she needs to go find. I, I, I put the script away, but but that, but that the, uh, the child there is another out there. Yeah,
2: but there is a child putting it to me, he says.
1: Right, right.
2: Uh, you know, I mean, uh, yeah this is a guy he's he, this is an ongoing process for him uh, and a scientist wouldn't put all their eggs in one basket and you know he, he speaks about you know Tell's last is Terrell's final trick procreation perfected then lost i think that's the line you know so uh, he's he, yeah he's he's envious of Tyrell. Tyrell has has had this breakthrough. Uh, but as a scientist, he's going to continue to try and replicate that, regardless of whether he he knows that there's this kind of like philosopher's stone out there which he might be able to get his hands on. He might not. So as a scientist, as this hugely successful scientist that he is, I, I would say, of course, he's going to continue along these lines and try and... Uh, he's still got as much of uh, Tyrrell's notes as, as he inherited after the blackout. So you know he's like Baron Frankenstein in his laboratory, trying to bridge that little gap that he's missing. Um, Whether that existed in Terrell's head or whether it existed on paper, whatever or or hard drive, it's gone. He can't replicate it, but it's not going to stop him trying.
0: So in closing, I just want to have a bit of a conversation with you, Ian, and kind of talk about how what your first experiences with Blade Runner are, and uh, how that kind of led you to. Your groups?
2: Uh, well, 1982, when the movie came out. Uh, I was faced with the ordeal of either going to see E.T. or going to see Blade Runner. I, I lived in Inverness at the time. <laughs> there, there was uh, a, 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 a sort of a, a two screen cinema. The, uh, the upstairs cinema was very small, very sort of a, you know, you'd only get about maybe 30 to 50 people in there, very small screen downstairs had the big screen and E.T. was down there with every other popcorn, I decided no, the sci-fi movie, I always loved sci-fi, I was already a geek by that time, I'd go and see this movie, see what it was about and I was smitten. I went back to see it again uh, three days later and I was the only person in the cinema and that kind of like reinforced it for me is that this is mine, this, you know, th- this is something for me and it's never left me uh i've continued to have discussions on and off with friends online you know and uh, obviously as personal personal messaging and the likes come along it's made it a lot easier and i was talking to a friend one night and saying wouldn't it be really cool if we just had if there's a group somewhere where we could just have discussions about the philosophy and the meaning and you know and and the kipple and yeah there were were groups about props and there were groups about the, the 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 background details and there were Interviews and, of course, there was future noir. But I, I want to share. You know, I, I also have a religious background in my upbringing. I was I was a, a Catholic boy destined to be a priest. I ended up becoming a detective instead. You know, there you go. Um, but uh, both both would I would say see the worst of humanity. Uh, anyway, uh, I was talking to a friend one night about. Uh, Blade Runner online and I I said wouldn't it be great if we had this group and he said yeah wouldn't it and I thought what the hell so I just started up Blade Runner UK fans group and within a month I had people from around the world asking if they could join so it became the Blade Runner worldwide fans group and it just went from there Um, I think we're now around about 7,600 members all of whom are pretty active we have, we have some pretty, some really cool discussions. Yeah, you know, we, we get some jerks coming in, but we have got a, a very strict set of guidelines with regards to courtesy and respect. There's no drama, absolutely no drama on the group. Uh, courtesy, no swearing. You, you can't just you know, curse somebody out because you don't like the way that, that they think about something. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. And as I said earlier, from the, that, that group when 2049 was, was announced, the purists said, we don't want to know about it until we see it. Some of them said, we don't want to know about it at all. There will only ever be Bradley Scott's Blade Runner and that's it. Uh, some, of, A lot of them have changed their, their thinking on that, having been tempted to actually watch the movie. Uh, some of them still think that way. Uh, a lot of people are highly critical of 2049 in the original group. But, you know, both groups are thriving uh, every day. You know, we get anything between 10 and 30 people joining and we have some wonderful discussions. And if, if you guys aren't in the groups, please feel free to join. And I've would, i I've loved this to, here tonight. You know, some of the things that you guys have said have just, in, in terms of eyes and Blade Runner, has really opened my eyes to, to some whole new avenues of thought with regards to Wallace himself, but also the world that they inhabit. So yeah, will you will
3: you name the two groups? Sorry to interrupt you, but can you name the two groups for the audience yeah. so everybody knows?
2: There's the Blade Runner Worldwide Fans Group, and there's the Blade Runner 2049 Worldwide Fans Group. Cool.
0: On- you know what? It's interesting about the fans. Uh, generally, uh, pretty generally, but it's pretty true. I have never seen a fan base for like, for instance, for the original Blade Runner love a sequel this much since aliens um, obviously there are people who don't and uh, there are people who are like oh no there's only blade runner but f- my experience 95 percent of the people who have were lo- who loved blade runner loved blade runner 2049 and it is a wonderful fandom to be in to to be in a, a group and a community of people who just that we we were able to receive this film that blew all of our minds and that has enriched the world. It's so different, but so familiar. Um, and to see that play out in fandom um, in, a, in an environment that is respectful, which is something that on our other podcast for uh, Perfect Organism, we're really trying to kind of work towards where people are courteous and kind, and you can talk about it without being insulting or being insulted. Um, it's, it's a really, really great thing that you've helped to foster.
2: Thank you. I mean, it's been four or five years uh, so far that the main group's been up and running, and if, I will say that it's the fans' group. It's you know it's not my group. I'm just kind of there as a host and to remind everybody the rules every so often. but uh, it's largely a self moderating group. You know, there's rarely ever, ever any need for me to step in. Uh, the, the fan base themselves are absolutely wonderful. Uh, you know, I've I've never I, I'm, I'm in a lot of groups online. I don't know of any fan base that is so respectful of one another's opinion as Blade Runner fans.
0: Totally. Well, I would say, unless uh, anyone else has anything to say, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for coming on, Ian. Peter, as well, you're awesome. Thank you so much. I know it's late for you, Ian. I know it's late for you, Peter. And you, Patrick.
3: Patrick's asleep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I'm just he, he
3: buzzing goes. out,
1: just thinking about how it's true. How Blade Runner fandom really is a wonderful place, and, and how I, I really enjoy so many conversations, just like these tonight. You know, it's just like every time we do an episode, I go into it thinking, like, how are we going to make this like convert It's it's so complicated. How are we going to make think the, the same work? thing every time? I was like, wow, it's like it's like <laughs> Two we, hours this, this could go on for six hours after this, but it's yeah. fucking almost midnight for me, and it's like dawn for Ian, and you know. But uh, it's been wonderful.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Really, it's a privilege. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, everyone.
3: We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.
2: Bye.
0: To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.